Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. Hurry to smileactives.com slash iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great tasting all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit symbiotica.com and use code iHeart for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. You're listening to Afropunk Solution Sessions. I'm your host, Bridget Todd. And I'm your co-host, Eve Jeffcoat. Afropunk is a safe place, a blank space to freak out in, to construct a new reality, to live our lives as we see fit while making sense of the world around us. Here at Afropunk, We have the conversations that matter to us. Conversations that lead to solutions. Hi, everyone. Eve's here. And we're back this week with another interview. This time it's with Raquel Willis. She's an activist, writer, and national organizer for the Transgender Law Center. And in episode 10, Identity, she spoke about the activists who came before her and just how difficult it is to share your truth, but how really important it is to do so. So if you haven't listened to that episode, feel free to go ahead and do that. But right now, here's the conversation Bridget and I had with Raquel. What's a word that you're you're really feeling right now that really speaks to you? Just one, if you choose one word. One word I'm really feeling right now... I like unearthing, so like like unearthing like history, unearthing figures that we don't know about, unearthing truths, because I, I think that we're always kind of unearthing different truths about ourselves. So yeah, I would say unearthing. I think another reason that's such a good word, uh, in addition to everything you just said, is that it really puts a like the word earth, it puts a focus on environmental things. And I think mm. there's a lot of um, there's a lot of problematic stuff going on when it comes to environmentalism right now. So if you add that element to it, that I think it's, it's also a thing of beauty about it. Definitely. Yeah. And, and you know, I, at the risk of sounding like weird, you know, I think this whole like concept of make America great again. Mm. To some people, they think that that's unearthing something. But when I think of unearthing, I think of a return to humanity, Mm -hmm. you know, a return to nature and the environment. And 
um, and the earth in, in a pure sense and not so steeped in capitalism, so steeped mm-hmm. in white supremacy, all these different systems. Mm-hmm. So the next one is, what does love look like to you? And what does joy look like to you? Love. Mm. So I feel like love is complicated. I feel like in one instance, it's like a cool rush of like water over you and like a quenching of a thirst that we all kind of have. But on the other side, it's also hectic and chaotic and it's like bubbling. It's like a pot boiling over sometimes. Um, So I I think love kind of fluctuates back and forth between that. Um, What does joy look like to me? Well, thanks to my therapist forcing me to actually define what joy is to me. Um, (laughs) I really think that joy is not success in this kind of wealth sense or these accomplishments, but joy is, like, the simple moments with, like, my nieces and nephews where they're just, like, in awe about something in the world that we've taken for granted as adults, whether it's Mm. something in nature, it's the sky, it's bubbles, it's all of these different things. Um, Joy is family to me, Um, and I think that that is a testament to my, like, southern roots, Mm -hmm. like, Family is so important, and my heart aches for people who don't know what family is, whether it's biological or it's chosen family, right? I think we all need our tribe of folks who ground us and um, know a truer sense of who we are than maybe the rest of the world does. (laughs) They can tell you about yourself. Right. Keep (laughs) you in check. Be like, nah, girl, that's not the move. So you mentioned that working with a therapist has been helpful in you understanding what joy looks like to you. Why do you think that's important? Not just to have joy in your life, mm-hmm. but to know joy to Raquel is this. Why is that important to you? I think it's important because I think particularly for me as a black transgender queer woman, um, Joy has looked like finding validation for much of my life. So validation in my identities, validation in my womanhood, validation in uh, my place in society. But that's not really joy. And it's something that actually is fleeting and based on other people's expectations for me. Um, And... I think we all have the answers to what brings us joy. Um, And I bring up therapy because I'm trying to be more transparent about my journey with it and and the fact that I think everyone needs a therapist. Like, you can quote me, everyone needs a therapist. You don't have to pay them. You should pay them. It could be someone that you're just really close to, but you need a sounding board. Um, just about life and uh, someone who can um, ground you in what you're actually feeling. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that therapy has really helped me, again, unearth the the joy that was already there. Um, but just coming to terms with how, how to articulate it and be honest about what, what those things are that bring me joy. 
Was that a journey, getting to a place where you're really vocal about the role that therapy plays in your life, vocal about what joy looks like to Raquel? Was that a, was that a journey or a process, getting comfortable with that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the assumption for someone with so many different identities that are marginalized, there's a, an assumption that I've always been um, open-minded to everything. Mm. Um, but I actually went through a very intense period where I was closed off to things that had not served me at other points in my life, whether it was religion. I really kind of shooed away this idea that religion or spirituality could be an escape for me because those were sites of violence for me, mm-hmm. sites of silencing and erasure. Um, and now I've met so many people who have a deeper, more nuanced um, relationship with religion and spirituality, and so I can see the light, right? Um, similarly, when it comes to therapy, I had my first therapist at 14, um, and and he wasn't really a therapist. He was a religious counselor, kind of <laughs> passing himself off as, like, um, this typical kind of therapist. And it, it was a a site of violence for me. It was a space where I had kind of divulged all of my truths around my queerness at that point, and it was used as ammo against me to have my parents try and, like, correct me around it. Um, And so it didn't actually aid them. That process didn't actually aid them in understanding and accepting my journey, and it also didn't aid me. But what it did um, give me was a reason to fight back and a reason to be like, actually, you know what, we're not going back to that therapist. This is my journey, and we'll just have to figure it out from here. But it was having that experience um, that kind of closed me off to this idea that therapy would work for me. And now that I actually have a therapist who is also queer, is also black, is also a woman, because I think that those things matter for me, um, it's been so helpful and so beneficial. What does identity mean to you? Identity. Ooh, good question. I mean, I, I think in a basic sense, identity is like your sense of self. Um, it's it's the things that you hold on to. Um and that doesn't necessarily mean that these are things that define you that you are at ease with. I think that there are, we're always going to have aspects of identity that we're trying to come to terms with and trying to figure out how to um, frame it in a way that is is um, accepting even for us as individuals. Um, but then also there are aspects of identity that are just pure celebration. Um, and, and it can take some time to get there. So, like, for me, blackness is pure celebration for me. It is something that is divorced from these ideas that we've been indoctrinated with in a white supremacist society and, and kind of global world or, or kind of global society. Um but that also took work, right? And I think for a lot of people coming to that that place where things like blackness or trans identity or queerness or womanhood can be sites of celebration um, is a struggle for most of us because these are all marginalized identities that we've been told 
um, are cumbersome or are a hindrance to us being seen as fully human. How did you get there? Like, what was that journey? Well, I think it's a never-ending journey. So I don't want to say I figured it all out because I I don't think that that is even possible because I think these identities are so expansive. Um, But it's really been, one, figuring out how to tell myself my story. Um, And that has been through writing. Um, Things that I have shared and things I haven't shared yet and things that I may never share. Um, It's been finding community and exploring these things with people who were also struggling, right? Because I think that there's a beauty in this kind of collective um, experience around our identities. And it's, I think the third thing has been realizing that even the people or the experiences or the systems that have tried to extinguish my fire around those identities have their place in this world for some reason. Um, And coming to terms with that and coming to terms with the fact that I am the person that I am because of those struggles, right? I can't go back in time yet. I don't know. There might be a time machine. <laughs> um, so one day, I'm sure y'all are exploring that somewhere. We've got, a, we've got a, a lab in the back. Yeah. Right. It's top secret. We don't want to <laughs> well, say too much. If anything, it's definitely going to be invented by queer people of color. <laughs> okay, exactly. <laughs> um, but I, I think that um, all of those struggles matter to who you are, right? And so it's about coming to terms with them, not trying to, like, paint them as something um, that they're not. You know, if they were hard, they were hard. If they were painful, they were painful. If they were sad, they were sad. And that's okay. Um, So I think I'm rambling a little bit now. But that third part is about realizing that even the people who have hurt you and oppressed you, they are suffering too in some way. Um, Some days you may want to hold that. Most days you probably don't want to hold that those people um, are harming you or harming the world. (laughs) Um, But I think even someone like Donald Trump, I can have sympathy for. Well, I was just going to say that 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 strikes me as an incredibly, like, empathetic Mm -hmm. stance and a stance Mm -hmm. that probably would surprise people to hear you say that even someone who is, you know, actively oppressing you, actively making your life harder, that you can recognize their humanity. What, what drives you to be that way? Um, might be a, that might be a big question. <laughs> you yeah. know, I, I think it's realizing that we're all flawed, you know, and I'm flawed. I think that there are a lot of people who think that um, because of my identities or because of um, the work that I do that I'm incorrigible or that I can't be problematic, but that's impossible, you know? Like, we're all capable of being problematic. We're all capable of being privileged or of being oppressed. Um, And I kind of hate this binary that we're in right now in society where we paint people uh, by whatever dynamic we choose to in that given moment without looking at the different nuances of 
of who they are. Um, and I get it. We're at a reckoning, right? Because marginalized people have not had the space to name what we've been going through in the way that we are now. And so we're at a reckoning right now where everything is the other extreme. And I think at some point we're going to fall somewhere um, in equilibrium around everyone's identities and experiences. I like that. Yeah. I also think that, um, like, a lot of that that nuance that you speak of, it comes down to relegating our vocalness and our care and our compassion to anger, um, and it's specifically, like, as people of color, as black people, and all this talk about, like, civility and about, you know, you're being a warrior, you're a warrior in a negative connotation kind of way, mm-hmm. that if you're, um, if you're speaking out, that, you know, yes, we're angry, but anger doesn't end to anger. Anger transforms into productivity. And, you know, I think, I think that's a large part of it, too. Yeah, I mean, and again, I mean, I think anger can, right? If if we have a real conversation around the core of where that anger is coming from. Um, but oftentimes, anger doesn't necessarily lead us anywhere if we don't have the space to unpack it, if it's just kind of, you know, quelched in that moment and... Um, shut down before we can actually reckon with what we're actually angry about. So I want to switch gears for a second, if that's okay. That's great. Um, <laughs> I want to know about your upbringing. Like how, like, how did Raquel, how did you come to this work? How, what brought you here? So, <clears throat> I was born by a river. <laughs> In a oh, little tent? <laughs> the, the Negro spiritual is about to... Are right. you going to sing right now? No, <laughs> I'm happiness. not a singer. I'm not going to force y'all to live through my karaoke voice. Um, I was actually born by a river, or near a river, <laughs> the Savannah River. Um, so, I was born in Augusta, Georgia, um, to a very traditional black Southern family. Um, but we were also Catholic. And so there were all of these, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So there were all of these dynamics of um, just rules and expectations um, around what it meant to be um, raised in in that kind of environment. Um, and so there are so many expectations around gender and around sexual orientation, again, around identity, um, that I feel like hindered me um, from really being able to express my truth. And my truth was that I was a budding trans person, but of course I didn't have the language for that. Um, And so my father... um, very typical in the sense of, like, he loved me, but I I needed to be corrected. Um, and not corrected just to, to fulfill his desires for who I was supposed to be in the world, but for survival as a black person in America, right? And so as someone who was assigned male at birth, there was this idea that if I didn't grow up to be 
this upstanding, heterosexual, God-fearing black man, then there was a failure on his part, and I wasn't going to survive in America. So, again, this is also hindsight, right? So, obviously, as a kid, I didn't have that context for why my relationship with my father was so tenuous. Um, But I, I also had a tenuous relationship with my peers, and so I was called everything, gay, sissy, like a girl, all of these different things from elementary school all the way up to to high school. Um, and it was difficult because I would go home and I would be this, like, perfect kind of Catholic child and, you know, all involved in church and doing volunteer work and all of that, which I think is a source of um, my belief in, like, stewardship or my belief in um, using my gifts and privilege to transform society. Um, but again, it was in that context. And then at school, I was bullied and I was the victim. I was the kid who, you know, was the butt of jokes, all those different things. And then I got to high school my ninth grade year, and I just started having all of these revelations about um, wanting to share my truth to free myself because it it wasn't really the bullying that was so horrible, um, even though that sucked. It was not being able to to be truthful about the fact that I knew I was different. I, at that point, the language for me was gay, um, and I couldn't say that. And then my 10th grade year, I had told my mom, and then I was telling my dad, and then, um, yeah, and then I came out at school. So my parents didn't love the fact that I was this queer kid telling them this, um, and it was a journey with them. But coming out at school in high school was, like, the greatest thing I could have done at that point. It was I, it was freeing. Um, and no one could say anything to me because my truth was the scary thing, right? And so now it's like, well, if you're holding that truth like a shield, who can really say anything to you now? Um, so flash forward to college, and I found a group of LGBTQ folks and met gender nonconforming folks and trans folks and— Um, started performing in drag at that point. And that was a period for me where I was like, oh, this actually isn't a performance. This is who I am. Damn, I got to say something again. (laughs) Um, By the the point that I had kind of had the language around being a transgender woman, my father had passed away. Um, When I was 19, he had a sudden stroke. And... That also served as a catalyst for me to realize that I had been trying to fulfill these expectations for him and society around not honoring my truth, and I couldn't do that anymore. And I didn't want to live a life, what, 40, 50, however long years after that, hopefully longer, (laughs) um, 
where I was just suffering because of everyone else's thoughts around who I was supposed mm. to be. Um, and so at that point, when I, I came out as, tran- as a trans woman on Facebook on Coming Out Day, I think it was in 2012, October, um, everything kind of shifted. And this weight was lifted off, and I could breathe. And so from there, everything else just kind of fell into place. Um, It took time, but my mom, my sister, my brother got on board and and figured out their stuff around it. Um, And I graduated, and then I, I had studied journalism. So I see journalism, media, organizing, all of these as tools to shift the world and to create a world that hopefully there won't be another little Raquel who feels mm-hmm. so lost, right? I mean, obviously we know that we, we still live in such a contentious time around gender identity, but things have shifted so rapidly in the last few years. And so I'm so grateful to be living in this moment with so many great people moving this work, too. Um, I'm absolutely positive that you've already done that for a lot of little Raquel's. I I hope so. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's weird to um, be a figure, mm-hmm. I think, to people. And it's taken a—it's also taken me a long time to, to come to terms with that, right, that— um, I've been able to give other people a glimpse of what is possible. Um, but I'm I'm honored for the folks that I can be that for. So what do you say, if there's a little Raquel that's listening <laughs> right now, what do you say to that person who, I mean, you put it so beautifully, wanting to share your truth. What do you say that person to that person who wants to share their truth but feels like they can't? I would say that sharing your truth Um, And getting to a point to share your truth is probably the greatest battle of your life, whatever your truth is. Um, And so I I want to acknowledge that because I think that we don't acknowledge that enough, that, yes, it it is difficult um, to live your most authentic um, life. Um, But I'll also say that there are more people out there rooting for you than you may know, right? Um, And you have to figure out how to find those people, Um, whether it means going to a group that um, you never would have imagined you would go to or or an organization or something like that or... or, um, moving to a place you need to to spread your wings in a way that you can't in your current um, environment. Do those things for yourself and don't feel guilty about that. Um, and I'll also say that there is beauty in trying to get the people around you or the people that you've always known to understand your truth, but that can't be your only um, impetus for this journey, right? Like, those people can't be at the core of you accepting yourself. You have to figure out how to do that on your own terms. 
Um, and that's what has helped me, right? Is not necessarily having these these grandiose expectations of other people um, in a similar vein to the ones that were put on me when I was born, right? You you will get it if you need to get it. If you can't get it, that's fine. I don't need that energy in my life mm-hmm. at this point. Maybe I'll revisit it. And I have revisited people um, who have done me harm in the past or not understood, but you have to to be selfish about your livelihood and about your survival. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back after this quick break. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Speaking of living in your truth, it, it just makes me think about, you know, you're a, you're a media maven, which means you're <laughs> self-professed. Um, so if you want to talk about how you he, how you got to that title, too, which I love, that that would be great. But um, just about being authentic, like, online and how to, how to live your truth online, specifically when it comes to social media. Because I know a lot of people kind of associate the social media sphere with, like, this manufactured image or you have to be somebody— maybe that you're not necessarily you necessarily feel that you are how do you navigate that world like how do you remain authentic when you're speaking to people online that is such a good question (laughs) 
how do I remain authentic uh, when speaking with people online? It takes work. Um, sometimes I actually envy people who can just say kind of this raw, unfiltered truth online. Because I don't feel like I do that. For me, I'm very intentional about what I put out into the world. Um, Perhaps sometimes to my detriment, right? Perhaps I, you know, rack my brain about things that I shouldn't. Um, But I think when you come from journalism or messaging or you're a writer, words matter. And so I will redraft a tweet probably like three times on average before I actually like tweet it out because I really take that seriously. And I really believe everything that we put out into the universe, it it then lives there. So... You know, I, I I think that we don't take it seriously enough that this is an extension of who we are as a person. And so if you wouldn't say that in person to a person or or just, like, out of your mouth, period, then you probably should not be saying that online because that actually has more eyes on it mm. than and more the eyes or the ears, really, for for words online. Um than anything else. And I, I it's it's just baffling to me that people don't understand the power of social media at this point. I mean, we literally have a president who a large part of the reason he is president is because of social media, is because of the hype, is because of the cult of personality that he was able to build through social media platforms. So... <laughs> Similarly, I, I, I just think that being authentic takes work and it takes a knowing of the self. And so, yeah, I, I want to be clear that when I put things out online, I, I can actually, like, stand by them in person. Yeah, someone once said, think about it this way, that if there was a New York Times headline that said, you know, Afropunk podcast host Bridget Todd says— blah, 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 like, would you be comfortable with that? And that you should think mm-hmm. before you put anything out, if it was a headline that attributed to your name and your title and your workplace, whatever, would that be okay with you? And I think thinking of it that way kind of helped me. Yeah. Um, something that you said that I think is so interesting is this idea of cult of personality online. I'm, I'm, this is a bit out of left field, but I have noticed that people who become public figures in the social change space, particularly on Twitter, I think that you kind of can get so much influence that at a certain point it becomes your own kind of echo chamber. And because you have lots and lots and lots of followers, you have a lot of kind of online clout, if that's a thing. <laughs> and that any almost any idea you put out, there's going to be people there to validate it and say, oh, yes, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. But in a kind of way, that sort of does a disservice because you're not able to—, to I mean, you're in, you're in your own little bell jar of people validating your ideas. Do you ever worry about that? That, you know, because have you ever seen that online? And if so, do you ever worry about that? Yeah. I mean, I think if you look on any celebrities, Instagram or Twitter or whatever, they can say the most ridiculous things and people will be like, that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Bravo. Right? Like, 
I um, it's so funny, and this is this is this might not apply so perfectly, but so Drake just released his album Scorpion, right? And actually, most people I know in person were like, even like hardcore Drake fans were like, eh, it was okay. <laughs> But, like, if you go and look, like, right under his next, like, (laughs) image he posted on Instagram after it was released, it's, like, all of these blue check people, verified people saying, oh, it was great. Oh, it's amazing. Um, Mm Da-da-da-da-da. And it's funny to me because that was really one of the first times I kind of realized I was like, oh, this is all bullshit. Like, there's no way every single one of these people thought this was a masterpiece. They may have liked portions of it, but thought that all of it was a masterpiece. Um, And maybe part of it is they just support him, whatever. But I I also think that the ways that celebrity and, again, this cult of personality is, is wrapped up in that, it warps our thoughts on different ideas and ways of treating people. Um, and so I I think about someone like Tr- Donald Trump, right, who celebrity obviously has, like, given him an armor amongst all the other thing- privileges that have, right, whiteness, maleness, being cisgender, being heterosexual. The list goes on. The list goes on. <laughs> and wealth. Right, but celebrity gives people a, an even higher platform than they probably should have. So they can say something like Mexicans are rapists to start off their presidential campaign and then win. And very few people bat an eye when it initially comes out, right? And now it's like, oh, wait, yeah, he did say that. Wow. Oh, right, and you continue—it's kind of like this—, this uh, what were you, like a snowball effect mm-hmm. because once you're desensitized, you once, when you start with that, what, you can only get worse, basically. Right. And it just becomes more and more acceptable. Like, it's easier to justify the last thing he said because the thing before that was ridiculous as well. Right. And, and you know, there's also something that um, a, a good friend, Melissa Harris-Perry, says. Um, she says that Particularly around the 2016 election, the fact that cameras were put on to Trump, right, it gave—it's like water and sunlight to any idea, right, when you're in front of a camera saying something and it's, like, broadcast out. Um, And I think that that's true of almost all media and, and social media as well. Like, you can say pretty much anything, and if it gets picked up, it's validated in a way that everyone's like, oh, okay, well, then I guess it's, it's okay, right? So you can say something really—like, imagine that line, the Mexicans are rapists line as a tweet. And if you see that tweet has, like, 100,000 likes, that is validation mm-hmm. on so many levels. So— I think we don't talk enough about that, about how we kind of think of likes still in a way in this abstract form, but how they actually do have consequences mm-hmm. and it translates to real life. It does. Well, there was just a study released last week saying that the number of hate, hate, like documented hate groups, particularly on college campuses, has risen and that that can be directly connected to Donald Trump's rhetoric. And 
you know, we need to remember that these things are not happening in vacuums, that they happen, they're not just things happening on Twitter. It can look that way, but actually they have, as you were saying, like very real consequences in real life. Right. Yeah, and I, I, you know, and I think, you know, perhaps maybe one of, if you want to call it a silver lining, one of the silver linings of this current administration is that they are really unearthing a lot of these things that have always been there, right? So I like to say this, the use this, like, example, but let's say a year before the 2016 election, if I were to talk about white supremacy as an activist, I would be looked at like I was paranoid and ridiculous. And to now see us having these kind of broad, com- like, collective conversations about white supremacy specifically and anti-blackness is so interesting to me. Um, And similarly, looking at how someone like him has unearthed the fact that sexual assault and harassment and violence is so prevalent, right? I think a lot of, like, folks who are women or identify as something outside of this kind of cis male identity— knew that, right? But even in some ways, talking about that publicly made us look ridiculous before this current moment, before Me Too movement kind of blew up. And so I think that perhaps that can, we can look at that as like, maybe it's a silver lining that we can have these conversations now, but obviously we have so much work to do. I think that's so true. Um, I think that particularly around talking about issues of anti-blackness and white supremacy from the political spectrum, you know, I never, I mean, as you know, black, particularly black queer and black women organizers have been talking about these things forever. I never thought I'd see the day where Cynthia Nixon can be a front-running congressional candidate and talk about these things on a platform, right? I never thought I'd see the day where we talked about things like reparations or, you know, abolish ICE. I never thought I'd see the day where, you know, Kristen Gillibrand you know, sitting member of, or sitting senator says, we should abolish ICE. I never thought I'd see the day that, you know, the rhetoric of, of prison abolition would be, would be discussed by white lawmakers and white, you know, political hopefuls, and it wasn't laughed out of the, laughed out of the arena. I never thought we'd get there. And on that point, like, the other silver lining to this validation is that we can, we can have that instant, like, gratification, that immediate gratification of knowing that you're reaching people. Like, you know that people are listening, I guess, is the other the other upside to having that sort of uh, online validation. Right. I, yeah, I, I think that that's true. And I, I, I'm also just thinking about the fact that what has gotten or what has garnered me a following online has been being my authentic self, talking about my identity, all of these different things, identities, and all of these different experiences. And, you know, that is the bittersweet part of it is that there are people who have ugly truths, right? Like actually very damaging thoughts and ideas and aren't committed to being transformed in them. Um so, yeah. So, I mean, I you know, it's, it's about realizing that all of these things are tools and being very clear about what your core values are. If you say your core values are empathy, vulnerability, 
um, then you have to live in that with everything that you put out into the world. I want to go back to something you said earlier. You mentioned, um, like, the cameras being on Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So it just made me think about this idea of, like, we're basically constantly surveilled. um, And you, as a public figure, are always under the watchful eye of the entire world. Um, So how, like, that's one sense of image, like the camera being turned on you and eyes being turned on you. But you also, there's this also other sense of image of, like, how we as people with different marginalized identities put ourselves out on front street. Like, we also have to think about how we look at ourselves and how we deal with our image in in dealing with all of these identities that we have. So I guess I'm wondering, how do you balance or reconcile this fact that you, you know you have eyes on you, so you have, like, you have a public persona, but you also have an image that you create for yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, how do, you, how do you balance that? It's hard. Um, I, I think it's about taking as many breaks as possible. Um, and again, having that core group of friends and family who ground me, right? Who I actually have to tell about things that I've accomplished so that they know like, okay, yeah, she's like celebrating this right now. Cause they don't, their, their relationship with me is not, following my every move, right? Their relationship was like, are you okay, girl? Are you in town? Like, what's going on? Those kind of things. And and that is really what has sustained me is building those relationships and taking them more seriously. And I, I think when I started to become more of a public figure is when I started to really understand the necessity of, like, fostering those relationships and and understanding that yes they are work but it, it's it's worthy work um so yeah so I, I I think that they keep me grounded um and keep me in balance with <laughs> all of these different faces to the public um but it is hard um it is hard to have this like feeling of not wanting to mess up or what the ramifications for other people would would be if I messed up. So, like, as a black trans woman who is um, visible and, and, and a public figure, I don't want to mess up opportunities for other black trans women by messing up um, or damaging relationships or anything like that. Particularly professionally, or like in the movement. Well, in that way, is 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 hyper visibility as a black trans woman? Is it kind of a double edged sword? Where on the one hand it's good because you have a platform, but on the other hand it's kind of not so fun sometimes. Yeah, (laughs) I mean that that sounds real. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is great to have access. Um. And be able to realize that that access can pro- provide opportunities to help other folks, to help other folks in my community, um, whether it's amplifying the work that they're doing or um, doing programming that that will help strengthen the work that they currently have, which is what my organizing is really all about. Um, 
but it, it is difficult. Um, and and I rarely talk about this period, but I think sometimes I feel like I've sacrificed a lot already for the work and for the movement in terms of, like, personal goals. So I think about... I think about love and romance and having a family one day and all of these kind of thoughts. And then, you know, I wonder if I've put myself too far out there that I've made those things impossible. Mm. Um, How do you reconcile that? Well, my therapist helps. (laughs) Shout out to her again. Um, You know, I, I think it's about realizing that Every struggle or um, every hard period that I've been through before, um, I've gotten through it. So I'll have some epiphany one day around how to balance all of this and balance being this public figure and and doing this organizing and movement work and being committed to it and also being committed to my personal goals around love and family and the rest of my personal life. We'll be right back after this quick break. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save 40% site-wide. Get 40% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. What what role do like 
our ancestors play in the work that you do and then just the way you move in the world? Like, does that, does that, does your lineage and like, does ancestry drive you in any way? Definitely. So I have definitely been thinking a lot more about the ancestors in this kind of general sense. Um, And I think it's hard as a black queer trans person, right? Because, you know, the go-to line is that we are our ancestors' wildest dreams, right? And so for me as someone who is at all of these different intersections— I probably would be a wild dream, you know, and and perhaps to a lot of my ancestors, I am a nightmare. Um, And so that's a lot to reconcile with. Um, Similarly, it's been a lot to reconcile with this idea that, you know, if my father was being back down to earth now and we were passing each other on the street, would he recognize me? And then when he did, what would happen? So it's hard to balance all of that. But I, you know, I have this idea that, you know, all of these spirits and ancestors, um, whatever kind of human insecurities and failings around understanding who I am that they may have had, they don't have that anymore. And so they get it. And so they're with me. They're protecting me. They're loving me. Um, And I'm thankful for that. And the other benefit of being also queer and trans is that I have all of these other ancestors that I'm not necessarily biologically related to, you know? So my ancestry is vast. You know, it is the Marsha P's and the Sylvia's. Um, It is all of these various figures who paved the way for me to do the work that I do now and live the life that I do now. Well, I was going to say something that it seems to come up again and again and again uh, in your story is this idea of community. You talked earlier about sort of together as a a collective community, making space for the feelings that don't feel good, but then also finding joy and beauty in that. You talked about going to college and and meeting your, your sort of secondary family and them helping you sort of live in your truth. What role has community played for you in your life? Well, growing up, and I'll I'll go back to that Catholic upbringing, um, and also that my parents had us volunteering with the local Red Cross chapter at, like, young ages. Um, I always felt like I had a duty to be invested in, in my community, whatever that was, and see myself as actually a part of it and not detached from it. Um, And and at that point, it was more around local community because that's such a Southern thing um, and a small-town thing. But community grew into something more for me. Um, It grew into a place of solace, um, a place of exploration, a place of, yeah, just trying on different experiences to figure out, like, who I was. Um, And that's what I think community can be, right? I think that it can be these places where we grow in ways maybe we couldn't in other spaces in our lives. Um, And now community to me is 
this kind of collective group of, like, warriors or resistors, right, Um, fighting for survival in a world that we have told we we exist and we deserve to exist and now is, like, yelling at us that we don't, right? And so I think that we're going to— we're going to win. I know that we're going to win. And we'll have the last word. Can you tell us a bit more about your work as an organizer? Yeah. So my work really has grown from something that was more about being isolated in my writing or um, <laughs> in my work in media to being more for facing in the community. Um, And so I have been, for the last two years, working as a national organizer for Transgender Law Center, which really means that I have been traveling across the country, meeting with and building with other transgender, gender nonconforming activists and advocates who are moving important work. And so... It's been beautiful to see that there's such resistance um, and resilience that has always been happening from everywhere, like Alaska to Montana to uh, the Deep South, Louisiana, um, Alabama, here in Georgia, Florida, all of these different places. There are trans and gender nonconforming people who are really shifting their environments and their realities. Um, And so as someone at a national organization, it hasn't been about going in and telling people what they need to do. Um, It's really about shifting resources so that they can better do their work. And and I'm thankful to have this experience and thankful to to now be working on a project um, specifically around Black transgender women and our healing um, and and the ways in which we need safety, support, and solace um, in in a moment where there's such violence and harassment, like you said, you know, the increase in hate crimes um, and or instances of hate is is astronomical. Um, and so this project, I'm working in areas that have had high rates of murder, high rates of violence. Um, really to build spaces for healing justice. So talking about our experiences and defining violence for what it is um, in a way that we've never been able to, but then also figuring out the ways to heal from those instances and prevent them from happening in the future. One thing that I, uh, I would really love you to speak on um, especially in thinking about identity, is the importance of naming, um, whether that's taking back the power in names, whether that's, you know, re- removing the power from names, um, the importance of of names. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I think, you know, when it comes to naming, it, it can be so many things, and it is so many things. So I think... For marginalized people, there's a necessity of naming our experience on our own terms, um, divorced from these systems that have tried to name us for us. 
Um, and so there's power in that, right? Um, in whatever way you choose to do that, however you choose to identify yourself, um, whether it is taking on a new name, which many trans and gender nonconforming folks do, many folks of different religions do that too, right? That can be a source of power. Um, but there's also the naming of our experiences. Um, and so, like I was saying, the naming of violence, when we think about the violence that happens to Black transgender women, it is often named by other people for us. And so many people don't get the full story who are outside of our community. And so naming that violence has looked like having real conversations on the fact that oftentimes it is our intimate partners or domestic partners who are committing this violence mm -hmm. against us, not strangers, right? Um, it's people who do know our identities and we've been able to be vulnerable with and have turned on us um, because of society, because of their own expectations around who they are. Um, and so this that's why this work is so important. Um, and, and why I think that there's a lot that everyone can gain from transgender and gender nonconforming people. I really believe that we are the future. I believe that we give a glimpse of a world where we are not encumbered by other people's expectations for us. And the truth is, honestly, we're not that different from everyone else because everyone is inherently gender nonconforming. This idea of the perfect woman or the perfect man or the perfect feminine person or the perfect masculine person it's just that. It's just a concept. It's just an idea. It's just an image. But the reality is, is we have all had points in our lives where we were told we weren't being the way that we were supposed to be. Whether it's little boys and men told that they can't have an emotional intelligence and cry and have a full range of emotions, things that are aspects of being human. Or whether it's little girls and women who are told that they can't be strong and they can't be leaders and they can't be in charge of their own destiny and have agencies. Those are elements of humanity. And for all of the people in between who fit neither script and were forced to figure out their own path outside of all of that. That just makes—that makes me think of—when you say, you know— we're not that different. Like, why, why is it so hard for everybody to recognize that? I guess, how does it, how does it feel to have, like, trans or gender nonconforming identities put out on Front Street or isolated, I guess, and having to talk about them separately than your other identities because it needs to be explained or because there needs to be more awareness? Just like, you know, like, now we have representation of trans people on this show or, like, this person was the first, like, having all these firsts, mm -hmm. was the first trans person elected to, you know, whatever, office. <sighs> it's, like, hard to explain this, but, like, how does it feel to, like, or does it feel like it's kind of, like, working backwards to ha have to kind of justify a part of your identity that really shouldn't be isolated from 
all the other parts of your identities? It's, I would say that there are two kind of conflicting feelings for me about this. Um, So there are times where I feel like I shouldn't have to isolate my transness um, to be heard or be understood. Um, When I'm in different spaces, I'm often the only trans person. So if I'm in an all-women space or a so-called feminist space, I'm often the only trans woman in there. And so then I have to name it so that people understand that they have a commitment to to this community. Um, but I, I should be living in a world where I shouldn't have to be in the room for that commitment to be mm. upheld. Um, and I know many trans folks who don't use trans as an adjective publicly because they're like, well, I'm just a man or I'm just a woman or I'm just whoever I am. So why should I have to add that? And that makes sense, right? Because we're not all activists. We're not all invested in 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 trying to like shift other people's thoughts and perceptions. That's the work that I do, but I call myself an activist and organizer. Um, and so there's no commitment for everyone to name their identities in that way every single time. But on the other hand, there are ways in which we celebrate every other identity. But when it comes to talking about, and I won't say every other identity, but many other identities in a way that we don't celebrate trans identity. So if I am saying that I am you know, a black woman, in many spaces, that is a sense of empowerment, right, for me to name myself as that. Um, And it's more and more accepted nowadays to name my blackness, to name my womanhood. But when I name my transhood or my transness, it is still seen as a slight against me. Um, And so there's this kind of, like, There's this weird kind uh, of—I'm missing the word for it right now, but this weird kind of pity that comes with naming my transness. It's like, uh, bless your heart for being able to say that, or, oh, you're so brave for being able to do that. And that actually doesn't tell me that you hear me, right? That just tells me that you still see me as so other that you have to see this identity as— something that I'm struggling with or I I had to struggle to hold on to. So it's both of those. And it's it's complicated because any given moment it could feel one way and quickly feel the other way. Um, Because when you have an identity that is so marginalized, you really have to do some work on figuring out where people are coming from when they ask you certain questions or explore it with you. A question I have that came from that was that you mentioned what it what it's like to be the only trans woman in feminist spaces. As we know from doing this work, there are plenty of feminist, so-called feminist spaces that explicitly say we are not inclusive of trans women. What do you what do you say to spaces like that that claim to be about uplifting women, but then explicitly will not be inclusive of trans women? Well, I think that. 
It's all about being clear about what you're creating a space around. Um, and so, you know, I and this may not go over well for some folks, but I can imagine that, you know, possibly for some reason, cis women would need their own space. I would hope it's around unpacking and and figuring out how to be more understanding of your cisgender privilege. That would be my hope. I'm trying to go into this with, like, best intentions. Um, But if you're saying you're creating a women's space, I'm a woman. Period. You know, I'm not going to give some full, like, essay on why I'm a woman. I'm a fucking woman. It is what it is. And so if you're creating a woman's space, and you intentionally leave trans women out of it, that's not a woman's space. That's a cis woman's space. And you have made it clear that you don't honor and support all women. So actually, it's not a feminist space. And I have gotten to the point, actually, I think in the last few months where I'm like, actually, we don't need to call TERFs trans exclusionary radical feminists. They're not feminists. They're assholes. <laughs> Every time I see that, I think, they, I mean, why are we giving them this? Why are they make it clear? This is me on my high horse, but they make it clear again and again. They are not committed to, you know, shared feminist ideals. So then why do we have to give them this label? Why, why do we? We don't, you know. I, and I get why um, trans people and usually trans women have used this term, right? And so I'm going to, you know, use whatever term you need to do. But cis women and cis feminists who claim to be trans-inclusive or um, whatever term you want to use. I I actually hate this idea of (laughs) inclusivity because it's ignoring the fact that we've always been there. Um, But if you claim to be some kind of ally or comrade to trans women, you need to be doing that work of calling out these people who claim to be feminists and exclude us. And that is not happening on a larger level, right? So I need the Gloria Steinems. I need the Lena Dunhams. I need all of these people, the Taylor Swifts. Shout out to Beyonce. I love you, girl. I need y'all to be like, oh, yes, I'm a feminist. And also, I'm denouncing these people who claim to be feminists and don't support trans women. And if you can't do that, then you're not a feminist. Period. To me. And then I'll also say, I understand, and I've had conversations with folks who do womb healing um, and specifically uh, reproductive justice around folks who have uteruses or uteri. (laughs) (laughs) It's a weird word to pluralize. Many people have multiple. um, But... uh, (laughs) You know, and and so a certain kind of reproductive um, system. And so, yeah, definitely, those need to be spaces. um, And those are spaces that can be created. You know, I'm not going to say anything can't be. And I understand the importance of that. But, again, not everyone has a 
every woman has the same reproductive system. And there are actually men and non-binary folks who have that reproductive system. And so if you're going to create a space around that, then honor them too. And then if you're not doing that, then be clear. This is a cis woman space to talk about reproductive justice. I would rather you be clear than claim it to be something that it's not. And invite folks in based on that false claim. Right. That's a good point. I was wondering, too, if you feel like your southernness shows up <laughs> in, in your work in any way. Because, like, you know, isn't it showing up right now on the mic? I hear that accent. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because it made me think of it when you said, uh, bless your heart. Yeah. <laughs> so I think of people people have a lot of misconceptions. As a person who's always lived in the South, was born, I was born in Columbia, South Carolina. So I've been in the deep South for a long time. But I think there are a lot of things that are misconceptions about, you know, people who live in the South just uh, as individuals, but as a society in general, like, like, and those misconceptions can be harmful because it makes it seem like there are things that we can't do or people who we can't be. Um, but also there are things that are very accurate that people generalize about the South as well. So I was just wondering if you, if you ever feel that, like, specifically when you're, when you're working, when you're organizing or, or you know, doing your thing. <laughs> um, well, you know what's funny is my mom, um, she said a few weeks ago, she was like, you know, I, n- I never remember how Southern you are until I hear you speak publicly. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay, really, girl, you know, you of all people, because her she is so Southern, too. Her accent is so thick. Um but I definitely do think my southernness comes out, um, and I think it's a core part of who I am. Um, I was also having another conversation with my mom the other day, and I was like, you know, I think for a long time I had shame around being from the South because um, I think when I grew up here, I really was defining it by— all of the oppression that has happened here. So, you know, the Civil War, the white supremacists, um, being in the Bible Belt, and heterosexism, cissexism, all of these different things. But that's really a disservice because the beauty of the South is that the people who have been so marginalized um, have made—many of us have made the claim to stay here, Right. Um, and fight in in one of the toughest fights across the country, still to this day. Um, whether it's around race or whether it's around gender or sexual orientation, um, we do that. And so why, why can't I define it based on the resilience and the resistance that has always been here? So there's that, and there's also just after living elsewhere, living in California— I have to roll my eyes sometimes because there's such privilege around progress. Um, And so there are some things, some fights there that I feel like we're, like, decades off of here in Georgia. You know, like in California, there's all of this work that has happened around— 
um, non-binary gender markers, right? That is something I don't even necessarily see on the horizon for Georgia. There's all of this um, work around protections for transgender people, transgender people who are incarcerated. I don't see that happening, that work happening here because of just how steep um, the conservatism is. So, so yeah, I, I think if you can make it in the South, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> can you list off, so I know we've talked about yourself as a media maven and a black woman <laughs> and a southerner. Now I'm curious, like, what are the, like, there are, I'm sure there are so many identities that people invite you to talk about a lot, namely your transness, your black womanhood. What, what are some other identities that you feel like don't get as much play? Because I don't know that people, I don't, I don't, I didn't know you were southern until I heard you talk either. Um, what uh-huh. are some, what are some of the other identities <laughs> that make Raquel, Raquel? Some other identities that make me, me. Um, ugh. I hate saying this, but I'm a Gemini. Oh, <laughs> yes. I was getting Gemini vibes. I, and I own my Gemini, and, and I don't hate it because I hate the, this identity, I guess, but because of the reaction to it. Because um, I often get, you know, I think Geminis are one of the most hated signs. Definitely. Yeah, yeah they are. Um, probably <laughs> the most hated sign, and then Scorpios are second. Um... But I think that, that they're rightful to be hated. Um, but anyway, so Gemini, um, what else? I love Beyonce, um, but I think that's, like, overrated nowadays. Um, I love Prince. Um, I actually really like music. The and studio was called Prince. We booked it yeah. just just for you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not really, but we should have. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Cool. Um, but I actually really like music, and I'm really I've been into like analyzing music for a long time. Um, so I'll like read up all the like theories on like artists during the period they were writing things because I'm always intrigued by that and how they like produce work. Um, and reading, like, the different meanings of lyrics and all of that. Like, I remember before Genius, back in the day, there was, like, songmeanings.com. <laughs> um, Taking it back. <laughs> right. Which was, like, the first Genius. They kind of ripped them off or something. I don't know. But yeah. so it, it's it's been a long thing. And I actually, when I started writing, I was writing. I, was, I wanted to be a songwriter, which very few people know when I was, like, 14 or 15. Um so yeah, so you, you, you still can. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if if <laughs> ten years down the line it's Raquel, songwriter, songwriter. singer, <laughs> activist. Like, yeah, right. or like I wouldn't be surprised if your if your title grew by ten <laughs> things in in you know just a few years. I'm hoping to add author to that soon. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but maybe who knows? I don't. There's no lane, right? So I, I think that's the other thing is. There is no lane for us. And what's so amazing about millennials, as much shit as we get, is pretty much everyone I know has created their own lane and is doing multiple things and figuring out how to infuse their passion into their work. Um, So I guess that's another identity, being a millennial. We hope you enjoyed that interview that we had with Raquel. We definitely did. 
and there will be more interviews in the coming weeks for you to hear. Afropunk Solution Sessions is a co-production between Afropunk and How Stuff Works. Your hosts are Bridget Todd and Eves Jeffcoat. Executive co-producers are Julie Douglas, Jocelyn Cooper, and Quan Latif-Hill. Dylan Fagan is supervising producer and audio engineer. Many, many thanks to Casey Pegram and Annie Reese for their production and editorial oversight. And many thanks to our on-the-ground Atlanta crew, Ben Bolin, Corey Oliver, and Noel Brown. The Underside of Power is performed by Algiers. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Afropunk. You deserve to treat yourself, so turn your tax refund into a U-fund and give yourself a Straight Talk Wireless Extended Silver Unlimited plan and get a new Samsung Galaxy A14 on them. You can get a great everyday value on wireless with Straight Talk's unlimited plan starting at $25 a line per month for four lines. You'll save so much, you'll be enjoying that refund all year long. It's the refund that keeps on refunding. Find Straight Talk at straighttalk.com or at your local Walmart store. Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 41424 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a Straight Talk extended Silver Unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the Silver Unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. When you're an American Express Platinum card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, Shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.